all that grace asks, it provides. I love that idea. If we want to understand how faith and works go together, I think that's a good place to start. Good morning to all of you, Four Corners Church. Uh, It's a, a joy to be gathered again to worship our great King, I was recently listening uh, on my phone to uh, the story of David and Goliath and just once again reminded of the glory of our great God. Can you imagine that scene as David goes out, young, small, weak, but God. And that's why we're here this morning is because we serve a mighty king who is also Abba, our Father. If you would please go with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 2, verses 12 to 16. We are marching our way through Romans as a church. In case you're, you're visiting with us, we, we go through texts, we go through typically books, but sometimes chunks of books like the Sermon on the Mount we did a couple of series ago, but uh, we... We continue through the book, and so we're building, as we follow the logic of the author, we are following uh, what God would teach us by His Spirit through His Word in a logical, progressive way. And we are now in Romans chapter 2, verses 12 to 16. I know that some of you are trying to memorize portions of Romans. I hope many of you are trying to do that. Uh, But I just want to encourage you in those efforts this morning and and just say this, they are not in vain. It's hard work to memorize something. It's even harder work to retain what you have memorized, but it's not in vain. It is not in vain to memorize God's Word. So if you've started that and now you've stopped, maybe after that first sermon in Romans you you were gung-ho and now it's kind of faded... I just want to encourage you to rev that back up uh, as you move into this coming week. Memorization is not just important in its own right. It's not just, well, we should memorize the Scripture. Memorization is so important because it leads to meditation. Memorization breeds meditation. And we know that meditation is the, the balm of the soul as we pilgrim our way through this life. That the way we are strengthened, the way we are fortified in God's truth is through meditation. And one of the best ways to secure that is through memorizing the scriptures. My wife Jennifer was recently telling me about a sermon she heard this past week on the radio. And the the preacher was talking about how Jesus fought Satan with the Word. And the preacher was connecting that to our own memorization of Scripture. That when we hide God's Word in our heart, we have what we need to fight Satan. And so he had this quick statement, we utilize what we memorize. And I think that's helpful because what we put in, we have to draw out when we are tempted by Satan, Just as Jesus there quotes three times from Deuteronomy, Jesus would have been in the Word his entire life. We see him at 12 years old, and he's 
uh, the teachers are marveling at him in Jerusalem because, well, of course, he is God incarnate. But also, I believe when the Psalms talk about the one who meditates on the word day and night, it's talking about the David, the Christ. The Psalms of David are pointing to the real David, Christ himself. Jesus spent his life meditating on the Hebrew Scriptures. And so when Satan came against him, he had that to draw out. Another way, in addition to memorizing, that we hide God's Word in our hearts is through study. So we memorize Scripture, but we also study the Scriptures. And that is what we come to now at this point in our service, instruction in God's Word, building on exposition, which is what we are about as a church. And as we've been making our way through Romans chapter 2, we are in the first major section of Romans that began in chapter 1, verse 18. So just to situate us, in case you are visiting this morning, you're like, what in the world? Uh, this is just dropping in, uh, parachuting into the middle of a text. Well, we are, we are situated within the first major section of Romans that runs from 118 to 320. Paul is explaining in this first major section how all people... Both Jews and Greeks or Gentiles are under sin and judgment. And what Paul is doing is he's saying very clearly and explaining very clearly that all people are under sin and therefore in need of God's grace in Christ. That people cannot make it to God on their own. Their ladder is too short. In fact, the ladder is so short It's non-existent. You cannot climb your way to God by your deeds because at the end of the day, no one does good, not even one. That's where Paul is headed. And he wants to make that very clear and emphatic in order that he might show the glory of Christ through whom God's righteousness is given to us so that we stand before him clean. That's what Paul is doing as he goes through this first major chunk. And at the end of chapter 1, Paul described the sin of the idol-worshiping Gentile world. And so it is as though Paul is marshalling these people before him. He's lining them up before him so that he can pronounce the verdict of God upon them in light of the gospel. So he brings the Gentiles in. And at the end of chapter 1, he explains their sinfulness, their idolatry, their wickedness of heart and deed. And then, in chapter 2, he turns his attention to the Jews. Unbelieving Jews, that is. And that's important for what we're going to see a little later. But he turns his attention to the Jews, who at this point are probably quite excited that Paul's blasting the Gentiles. In verses 1 to 5 of chapter 2, he tells the Jew that he too is a sinner. So he's been listening to Paul describe the sin of the Gentiles. And now Paul turns and says, but you are a sinner as well. While he judges the wickedness of the Gentiles, he is actually condemning himself because he does the very same things that the Gentile sinners do. 
Paul also says that God's historic kindness to the Jewish people as a people is meant to lead them to repentance, not cozy, comfortable presumption. So the the hypothetical Jew to whom Paul is speaking at the beginning of chapter 2 is not one who is inclined towards repentance, but one rather who is inclined to presume on God's kindness towards the Jewish people. Then in verses 6 through 11, Paul explains that merely being a Jew will not get a person off the hook before the judgment seat of God. That's not going to cut it. But I'm a Jew, God. I'm a Jew. I'm a descendant of Abraham. That will not work in the day of judgment. God will judge. He will judge both Jew and Gentile impartially. How so? How will he judge Jew and Gentile impartially by the same criterion as he describes in verse 6? He will render to each one according to his works. So that's what we spent our time looking at over the last couple of weeks. And now today we come to verses 12 to 16. Here... Paul continues to build on this idea, the idea we've looked at for the last two weeks, this idea of impartial judgment according to works. And let me just stop and say this. I hope that the last two weeks, if nothing else, has stirred you up to a deeper understanding of what saving faith is. And I also hope this, that the last two weeks have stirred you up to search the scriptures, and even more, have stirred you up to good works. Not to just rest on your laurels. Not to just sort of settle on into a nice, worldly Christianity. But one that is filled with good, God-glorifying works. And so I hope the last couple of weeks you've had fruitful discussion in your gospel community group about these things and even at home and among friends. And and I do hope that you are wrestling with these things because these are difficult things often to reconcile. How is it that we are justified? We're going to talk more about this today, but we are justified, clear teaching of scripture, we are justified by faith, by God's grace. Through grace, by faith, we're justified, made right with God apart from our works. And yet, in the day of final judgment, God's judgment of us will be in accordance with our deeds. How do these two things go together? And that's the beauty of studying the Bible is oftentimes we will, we will be heavy on one and ignore the other. And so what Scripture is calling us to do is bring the two together and wrestle with it in our theology. The title for today's sermon, and you'll see this up on the screen here, is Doers, not hearers. Doers, not hearers. There are three things this morning that we're going to consider. First, the unfruitful hearers. Second, the unexpected doers. And then finally, the unmasking judge. So that, these will be the three points that take us through these verses as we try to understand what Paul is saying in context of what we've already looked at. We try to look at what Paul is saying in verses 12 to 16. So if you would please stand with me. We're going to read God's word together. 
So we're looking at 12 to 16, but I'm going to go all the way back to verse 1 of chapter 2. We'll start there and we'll read up through verse 16. So I've already explained to you what went on in the opening verses of the chapter, but hopefully this will recalibrate you mentally so that you're able uh, to, to look at the verses for today with that background in view. This is God's word. It is perfect and profitable for his people. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath For yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. And now for today's text. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts." while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. You can go ahead and be seated. This has been a variously interpreted text and There has actually been much debate over these verses. Uh, Maybe you're aware of that, maybe not. Try not to get in the weeds too much on that today. Hopefully just try to explain it uh, and and substantiate what it is I'm explaining while giving some reference to those views. But I'll just say to you, this is a a very difficult passage. Uh, One commentator named Thomas Schreiner, a recent commentator, he said that this is uh, one of the most difficult texts in the letter. So in all of Romans, this is one of those hard spots. So just keep that in mind as we go through today. And I'll, I'll say this, the, the difficult verses, those that sort of trip up interpreters, are verses 14 and 15. 
in particular. But the whole passage is, is a little bit difficult. So let me pray, ask for the Lord's help, and then we will jump into our passage. Father, you are holy, you are sovereign, you are good. You love us as sons and daughters through and in Christ. Father, we love you. We thank you that you are our Abba, our Daddy. You care for us in ways we will never understand. You see the depth of our hearts far beyond our ability to see. You are merciful and just. You are kind and you discipline us. You are good. We praise you this day. Father, we thank you for your word, which is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. We thank you that you use it to show us our error and to pave before us the Christian life. We thank you, God, that you have given us today these verses, these precious verses from your word. We ask that they would be explained clearly, though imperfectly. We pray that they would be understood and that your spirit would bless this time of instruction and that your spirit would apply it to each of our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. So the first thing we're going to look at this morning is the unfruitful hearers. And for that, we're going to look at verses 12 to 13 as we walk through the text. So let's look at those verses, 12 to 13. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. There were many reasons why a Jew in Paul's day might think himself superior to the Gentiles. Many reasons. The Jews were God's chosen people. Yes, they were. They are. Descendants of Abraham, according to promise, according to the flesh. Paul's kinsmen, according to the flesh, as he will often say, the descendants of Abraham through Isaac, through Jacob, and through Jacob's 12 sons. Those who had enjoyed God's provisions, his power, and his presence for over two thousand years by the time of Paul. Many reasons why a Jew might think himself superior to the Gentiles. And in one sense, the Jews had reason to think this way. In one sense, they did. Paul describes it in Romans chapter 9, verses 4 to 5. He says, they are Israelites, and to them, to them belong." The adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. With each of those words, 
scenes of Scripture should just come exploding on your mind. Each of those words that Paul uses there, to them belong the adoption. Pause and think. The glory. Think of the cloud. The covenants. The giving of the law. The worship at the temple. And the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And of all the things that gave the Jews a great sense of privilege and advantage, nothing stood out more than the law. The law of God. We have the law. The Gentiles are apart from the law. They don't have the law. We have the holy law of God given to Moses on Mount Sinai, written with the very finger of God, the creator of heaven and earth, and all that is in them. Nothing stood out more than the law, the Mosaic law, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And by the way, the rest of the the Hebrew Bible really is an explication of the law understood in that way. The Holy Scriptures, the heart of the Hebrew Scriptures for the Jew is the law. The law of God. This goes all the way back. This focus on the law goes all the way back to Moses with Joshua. Listen to what the Lord God says to Joshua as he's about to take the people into the land of promise. He says, this book of the law, Joshua, shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. Fast forward. Fast forward a thousand years roughly to the time of Ezra. In this post-exilic time where the Jews have been cast out of their land. And then they've been brought back to their land. Ezra chapter 7 verse 10. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. The Jews had this law, this holy, divinely given law. Oh, how pitiful the philosophy of Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle in comparison to the law of God. Oh, how pitiful the wisdom of the Egyptians and the Babylonians in comparison to the holy law of the living God. This is what the Jews had. But what Paul wants his hypothetical Jewish listener to understand is that merely having the law profits nothing. Nothing at all when it comes to God's Judgment, the same judgment upon sin comes to those with and those without God's law. And in fact, those with the law will be judged more sternly because they have the law. Look back at verses 7 to 10. Notice what Paul says. I did not make a big deal of this at the time. But notice what Paul says. For, he says, There will be tribulation and distress 
for every human being who does evil, the Jew first. The Jew first and also the Greek. So not only will God judge all people indiscriminately, and just because Jews have the law does not mean that God will exercise leniency with them, but on account of the fact that they have the law, they will be judged more sternly. The Jew first, and also the Greek. Verse 12, Paul says, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Just as the Jew cannot look down on the Gentile and say, well, we have Abraham. The Jew can't do that. The Jew can't look down on the Gentile sinner, the Gentile out there, whoever he may be, and say, we come from Abraham. Remember the words of John the Baptist. God is able to raise up descendants for Abraham from the rocks. Neither can the Jew look down on the Gentile and say, well, we have the law. Neither of those will work in the day of judgment. As Paul will go on to say later in chapter 3, verse 9, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. People will either be judged by the law or perishing apart from the law. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every Jew and every Gentile. Every Jew and every Greek. As John Murray says, the mere possession of the law does not ensure favorable judgment on God's part. So that's the big idea here that I want to get into your minds is that this Jewish hearer, this hypothetical Jewish listener that Paul is speaking to in these verses is thinking along these lines. He is thinking, he or she is thinking, we have the law. We have the law. And somehow that's going to translate into God's leniency at his judgment seat. Not so, says Paul. What matters, Paul goes on to say, is not that one has the law, has been exposed to the law, has heard the law, but rather that one does the law. That is what matters. So look at verse 13 again. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God... Now, since it's like this, or a clause like this, is what troubles us a little as Christians. But hear what he says. But the doers of the law will be justified. Not the hearers, but the doers. At the end of the day, when it's all said and done, listen to this. Those who will inherit eternal life Listen to this. This is so important. At God's judgment, those who will inherit eternal life will be those who are judged by God as doers of the law. Inescapable from Scripture. God will either render the judgment doer of the law or there is hell. 
It's one or the other. The law that Paul describes in Romans chapter 7, verse 12, as holy and righteous and good. And is this not what we find in James chapter 1, verse 22? Be doers of the word. Probably this is the first thing you thought of when you saw the title, doers, not hearers. James 1, 22, be doers of the word and not hearers only. And then listen to what James says, two words, deceiving yourselves. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves, meaning that if you are a hearer only and not a doer, you are deceiving yourself if you think that you're in. We also see this emphasis on doing and not just hearing with our Lord himself in the Sermon on the Mount. So Matthew chapter 7 verse 24, listen to what Jesus says. Matthew 7, 24, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. What's the alternative in that passage? It's the person who hears the word and does not do it. And what happens to that house? Destruction. That's hell. That's judgment. That's condemnation. Now, there's much more to be said here, as we'll see in a moment. So at this point, you know, you, maybe you're scratching your head. You think, I, once again, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling with this. There's much more to be said here, and we're going to say a little bit more in a moment. But I want to quickly just pause right now and draw out a couple of implications for us, just based on what we've seen so far. So first implication, as we think about the Christian life, Hearing without doing is nothing. Hearing without doing is nothing. You know, there is a real danger, churchgoer, for you. In fact, there's more danger for you than for the person who is not even exposed to the word. Not even exposed to it. What's the danger The danger is that our assurance becomes attached to our exposure. Do you hear that? The more more exposure you have to God's truth, the more in your mind, in the self-justifying deception, like this person to whom Paul speaks here, the more you're exposed to it, you begin to think, well, I'm, I'm I'm okay. You know, I mean... I listen to the Word, I listen to sermons, I read the Bible, I go to church. Exposure, exposure, exposure breeds assurance, 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 but it's false. That's a real serious problem. The proof of our authenticity is in our deeds. The proof of our authenticity is in our deeds. Not our exposure. Here's the second implication that I think we need to reckon with. And I've already alluded to this earlier. Hearing without doing is storing. When we hear without doing, we are storing up wrath for ourselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Why is that? 
Because the more of God's glorious truth that you hear, the more you are responsible for. Yes, there are people all over the world who don't hear what you hear, who don't read what you read, who don't have access to what you have access to, to to the one who's been given much, much will be required. There is danger, immense danger, in being a hearer and not a doer. We're storing up for that great day. So that's first, the unfruitful hearers. Now we come to our second point this morning, which I hope will be a little bit more clarifying, and that is the unexpected doers. So look with me at verses 14 to 15a, just the very beginning of of verse 15. This is the hard bit. I'm not going to belabor it, though. You can go and read if you'd like, but I hope I will be able to explain it in a way that is clear and convincing. Verses 14 to 15, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Now I want to stop right there and consider the next part with the final point because I think it, 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 it goes there nicely. Paul has just finished telling the Jews that they are not better off merely because they have the law. That's what I've just been talking about. But now he says something radical to the Jewish ear. There were rabbis who said what I just said. There were many rabbis who said, look, you can't just expound it and listen, you got to do it. And of course, we know the Pharisees and scribes, their hearts were totally corrupt, but they were at least interested in doing the formalities of the law. So at this point, what Paul has said so far is not all that radical. But now what he says is incredibly radical to the Jewish ear. And this is what he says here, I think. There are actually Gentiles who do the law, even though they do not have it. So the Jews who have the written law and judge the Gentiles who don't have it are now confronted with Gentiles who do not have the law, but who nevertheless do it because it is inscribed on their hearts. What? We're the law people. We're the Jews. We're the law people. We're, we're the ones to whom God gave the law. You know, you tell me these wicked Gentiles, these Gentiles that you've just described at the end of chapter, they're the law keepers? You hear the laugh and the anger. You hear the jealousy. By the way, Paul's apostolic ministry was to provoke Israel to jealousy. Read later in Paul's epistle, chapters 9 through 11. This is radical to the Jewish ear. There are Gentiles who obey the law, who do the law from the heart. This is the language of the new covenant in Christ from Jeremiah 31, 33. Some would say that this is not an allusion to that passage, but I think it is. Jeremiah 31, 33, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. Paul uses the same 
language in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 3, when he's talking about Christians. He says, and you show that you are a letter from Christ. By the way, he's talking to Gentiles in Corinth. Okay? These are, these are largely Gentiles. And this is what he's saying to them. You show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Yes, I think Paul is saying the same thing here. He's referring to, for example, the Christians in Corinth. He's talking to a Jew, hypothetical Jew, and he's saying, but these Gentiles, maybe he's pointing over here at these Corinthian Christians, Gentiles, they have the law in their hearts. They do the law. You have the law, don't do it. Now, some have interpreted this, and in fact, I think there are many who have interpreted it this way, and many great, illustrious names, the likes of of John Calvin, Charles Hodge, John Murray, John MacArthur, some of the most, I think, uh, some of the best expositors of Scripture who who, who would disagree with what I have just said. And they would say, rather... That this refers to natural law within the Gentile pagans. So that although they don't have the Mosaic law, they do have the law of nature within them. I don't think that's what Paul is saying here. Instead, I think Paul is saying the same thing here as he did in verse 7. There are Gentiles, listen closely to this, there are Gentiles who are in Christ who though they do not have the law, nevertheless by nature follow the law from the heart. As verse 7 says, they by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality and will receive eternal life. It's the same idea. This is the same thing Paul says at the end of the chapter. So look with me at the end of chapter 2. And if this is a little tedious for you, I, I, it, it is... It is uh, It's difficult not to get in the weeds here. But look at the end of chapter 2, verses 26 to 29. I think this passage helps us understand our current passage. This is what Paul says. For circumcision indeed is a value if you obey the law. He's speaking to the Jew. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man, here we go. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, that's the people he just referred to earlier in the chapter, keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. Paul's not talking about hypothetical people here. He's talking about Christians. He's talking about Gentiles who have God's law in their hearts, have circumcised hearts, and who keep the law from the heart. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. And that's what Paul has in mind in Romans chapter 9 when he says Christians are descendants of Abraham. 
Christians become Jews, if you will, grafted in, Romans 11. A Christian, whether he be Jew or Gentile, is one who has a heart that is circumcised by the Spirit. We read this throughout the New Testament. It is a person who, as Paul says in Romans 7.22, delights in the law of God in his inner being. In Christ, we are those who keep the law from the heart. Listen to Paul's language in Romans chapter 8, verse 4. This is how Paul describes the Christian. Romans 8, verse 4. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. In Christ, walking according to the Spirit, we are fulfilling the righteous requirement of the law in its essence and in its whole. So what's our response to this? First, I think praise. Just pure praise. Ephesians chapter 2 Verses 12 to 13 helps us here a little bit. Who are we in this room? Well, some of us undoubtedly have Jewish descent, ancestry. But largely, I think we are Gentile people. Our ancestors worshipped idols. Our ancestors worshipped idols themselves. They were, as Ephesians 2, 12 to 13 says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You whose ancestors were lawless, pagan, idol-worshiping people have now been given the very law of God on your heart. You have God's law written on your heart in Christ, covered in His blood with the power of the Spirit to live a life for His glory within you. Praise. Just pure praise. A second response is practice. Praise and practice. God has justified us by faith unto a heart of obedience by the Spirit. Let me say that again. God has justified us by faith unto a heart of obedience by the Spirit. Our life's work, if you will, is to carry out the essence of the law from the heart in every area of life. What is the law? To love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, to love our neighbor as ourself. That's, that's our marching orders. That's what we are at the core by nature. That's what we have become in Christ. We are a new creation. New creation has broken in. We are changed people. Once we were by nature children of wrath, now we are by nature the sons of light, sons of God. We are the temple of the living God. It's incredible. 
so away with a carnal, lazy Christian life. Away with a spirit of sloth and worldliness. All of this grace that we have received from God is moving towards final vindication and eternal life. It's not one and done. It's not that. It's not pray to prayer, check the box, good with God. It is not that. That is not New Testament Christianity. That is 20th century into the 21st century evangelicalism. That's not biblical Christianity, one and done. It's ongoing. Final vindication awaits us before the throne of God unto eternal life with blessed assurance as the one who has sealed us cries out within us, Abba, Father. That's the Christian life. Anything else is a deception. So finally, we come to the unmasking judge. We've looked at the unfruitful hearers, the unexpected doers, and now as we close, we come to the unmasking judge. Look at the rest of verse 15 into verse 16. They show, I'll read verse 15 again. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. And then here's what we're picking up with. While their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. There is coming a day. It's a real, it's a real thing. It's a real event. It's a real day. We are in that day, understood, in a broad sense, but there is coming a day, a time, an appointed time, an event in human history when each of us will stand before God in our bodies. I mentioned last week this man, Jeffrey Epstein. You guys have heard, followed parts of that story. One of the things that I've heard people say is, so sad justice wasn't done. He took his life or whatever happened. Justice couldn't be done. Oh, justice will be done. There is a God who sits on his throne. Justice will be done in the earth. There is coming a day when each of us will stand before God and on that day, mere Hearing will not stand, only doing. That's the main idea of this entire text. To use the language of verse 7, only patience in well-doing will inherit eternal life. Those who have trusted Christ and have been justified by faith before God's judgment seat, our sins have been forgiven. And we stand clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We have been justified by faith. We have put on Christ. His blood covers us just as at Passover when God passed over the homes of the Hebrews who had the blood on the doorposts and on the top. God's wrath passes over us when he sees the blood by faith alone. But is that faith real? Is it real? 
Is it authentic? Are we true or false professors? Jesus says you will know a tree by its fruit. In other words, the nature of the tree, so here I'm going to try to help us make sense of that word justified. Here, Jesus is saying the nature of the tree is justified or proven by the fruit it produces. And this is exactly what James says in James chapter 2, verses 20 to 22. So Paul says justified by faith alone. James says, no, 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 no. We're not justified by faith alone, but faith and works. So Catholics carry around James. Protestants like Martin Luther kick James under the rug and carry around Paul. No need. They go together. They're beautiful. They're beautiful together. And they fit together with a text like Romans 2 situated in the rest of Romans. Paul is helping us put all these things together. I think this text help us, helps us make sense of James. James 2, 20 to 22. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. Verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. You see, we have the advantage of having looked at that story in Genesis 22. And in Genesis 22, what does God say? Now I know, right? We have a justification in Genesis 22. It was counted righteous. His faith was counted righteous to him, Abraham, in Genesis 15. But in Genesis 22, he is justified likewise as one who really does believe. You see that? There's no contradiction here. Justification needs to be understood in context, rightly, with what is being said. This is the same thing that Paul says at the end of verse 13 when he says that the doers of the law will be justified. Vindicated, that is, as authentic on the day of judgment. Because on that day, hearts will be opened, lives will be unmasked. This is the reason I've entitled this point, The Unmasking Judge. God will peer into every nook and cranny of every soul. He will see Every split end of every hair of every life, every fiber, every cell, every atom, every proton and neutron, every single thing he will see and it will be exposed before all, all rational creatures who are there at the judgment. Angels, souls of men raised in their bodies, all will see God is just. And God will be glorified. Every secret thought, every motive behind every deed will be laid bare before the eyes of all to see. 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Listen to the way Paul describes it. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness. Oh, what is hidden in darkness in this room?
will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. And what will God find inside of us? His people. Christians. We will have, as he says here, Consciences showing that God's law is written on our hearts. We will have consciences activated and bent towards that holy law inscribed on the heart. The orientation of our lives will be towards the Lord. As Paul says in Romans 7.22, we will delight in the law of God in our inner being. And yes, we will have conflicting thoughts. This is amazing. God's mercy here in this, hear this, hear God's mercy, see God's grace. We will have conflicting thoughts. Oh, many of those thoughts accusing us. Many of those thoughts on that day before God accusing us of vainglory and false motives, impure thoughts, selfishness, idolatry. Oh yes, how we struggle. We will have conflicting motives. But the truth of our hearts will stand before the eyes of the God who sees and knows all. Our hearts will stand before the eyes of our Maker and Redeemer in Christ by the Spirit. They will stand. Our authenticity, although cluttered with all kinds of sin, will shine forth like the sun. In our deeds and in our motives, we will be shown right. We will be shown pure. We will be shown God's. God possessing us, that is. We will be his. 1 John chapter 3, verse 20 says, For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Praise God. Some of us have consciences that afflict us. Sensitivities. Praise God that he is greater than that. Martin Luther, reflecting on, this ver- on these verses, says... So then, on this particular verse in 1 John, I mean, he says, So then, God is greater than our heart. Far greater is he who defends me than that which accuses me. Indeed, infinitely greater. The slanderer, Satan, the devil, the accuser. Oh, he will drag us through the dirt. But God is greater. And in him... We stand. So take heart, Christian. Do not let these sermons unsettle your assurance of salvation, but do let these sermons push you on toward the prize, push you on toward standing before a holy God clothed in Christ with many good works in purity of heart by the Spirit of God.
A parting implication for us this morning from John Calvin. Regarding this passage, he says, We are warned that if we wish to be really approved by our judge, we must strive for sincerity of heart. Let me say this to you. There is nothing that you could pursue more in the Christian life than sincerity of heart in Christ. Sincerity of heart before God. Don't just be busy. Be attentive to your motives and pray to the Lord that although imperfect that your motives would be pure insofar as they can be. Oh, how broken we are. How duplicitous we are. How confused often our motives and our thinking are. But God is so gracious to use fragile clay pots like us for His infinite glory. So, we pursue sincerity of heart in all that we do before God, for the glory of God, in reliance on God for the good of others. And in the midst of our tainted motives, do we sit around and worry this kind of hyper-introspection? No. We press on, entrusting ourselves into the hands of our merciful Father who sees the glory of His Son written on our infallible, and on our fallible, that is, hearts. His infallible Son has taken residence in our fallible hearts. Praise God that He sees the glory of His Son and rewards good deeds, though impure. That's our good God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word today. We pray that it has fed us. We pray that it will continue to do so, that you would be with it as we discuss it this week in groups and at home and meditate upon it. Father, we ask that you would continue to grow us in our understanding of what your word teaches, that we would rightly put texts together in the Bible and understand what you've called us to. Father, I pray that we as a church would be a church filled with good works. But even more, God, that it would not be so much the quantity, but that our hearts would be sincere. Oh Lord, how broken we are, but we know that you have given us all that we need for life and godliness. You have given us power from the risen, seated Christ who has crushed our enemy and who is seated far above all rulers and principalities of darkness. And so God, in Christ, by His Spirit, use us in this life for Your glory. In Jesus' name.